Well, hello, everybody. Today is March 13, 2023, and I'm honored to have Jim Vaccaro, the chair, CEO, and president of Manasquan Bank, which is a $2.8 billion community bank, which has been an ex- next year will be celebrating its 150th anniversary. And in addition to being the chair, CEO, and president of the bank, Jim is on the community, on the Federal Reserve's Community Depository Institutional Advisory Council. He's one of 12 members of this committee, one from each district, and he happens to be the representative from Region 2, which is uh, the New York region. And Jim, thanks a lot for being here today. I just wanted to ask you, uh, with Silicon Valley Bank, what happened? First, Bob, thank you for having me this morning. Um, So a whole confluence of issues that happened. Uh, We all recognize that Silicon Valley was a very high growth organization. You know, on, on Friday, they boasted assets of about $200 billion, which was about 100% increase from where they were three years ago. And they were a primary funding vehicle for venture capital, private equity, high-tech organizations, which have fallen a little bit on, on hard times to some degree. Um, there's been some rumors about the solvency financial stability of Silicon Valley, and we started to see late last week stock took a dive. Uh, People started withdrawing their money from the organization on Thursday night. uh, Thursday, they actually, in order to satisfy the outflows of deposits, they ended up selling a significant portion of their investment portfolio. So they had about 20, they sold about $20 billion. Their investment portfolio comprised about 40% of their total balance sheet. They ended up taking a realized loss on that sale of about $2 billion. Now, their investment portfolio consisted of treasuries, correct? Treasuries, agencies, mortgage backs, as I understand it. And I didn't have an opportunity to look at the duration, but I understand they were fairly long term. And so, therefore, there there was a a fairly significant negative mark on, on that whole portfolio. Again, that portfolio was about 80 billion. They ended up selling 20 billion and take a $2 billion loss, um, which which in essence in the banking world becomes a hit to capital. And so capital became a bit constrained. Thursday night, they were going to raise common equity and, and increase capital through an underwriting that was going to be led by Goldman Sachs. But because of all the negative press, that failed. So Friday morning, people were lining up the doors to take their deposits out of the organization. And that's when the, the state of California came in and named the FDIC receiver of the organization. Now, it's my understanding that about 90% of their deposits, and you probably have the exact figures, were uninsured. Yeah. Uh, so the numbers are anywhere from 90 to 97.5% of their total deposit base was uninsured, which is a very, very high number. Just so order of magnitude, uh, most organizations have no long, no more than, say, 40% uh, uninsured, um, excuse me, 50% uninsured. And, and you know, or organizations like ours, we're about 55% insured, 45% uninsured. And it's really interesting, is, uh, the insurance levels, you know, is 250,000, and that's been in place since um, 2008. So it's been 15 years since they changed it. And if they, you know, if they just indexed it to inflation, we'd be talking about a much larger number. But now for the average, like for an individual to keep less than 250000 in a bank, that's easier than a large corporation, which is, has a lot of money coming in, a lot of money coming out. 
it's, it's extraordinarily difficult for business banks, those depositors to stay under that limit because they use banks as the depository and repository for either operating accounts, payroll accounts, and it's virtually impossible. So it's really incumbent upon the individual clients to do their own due diligence. A lot of the money that was at uh, Silicon Valley was money, uh, operating accounts and the like uh, from companies for which Silicon Valley had provide credit over a period of time. So they get the proceeds from the load. And even if they're in the bank overnight or for a few days until it's dispersed, it's uninsured because it's over 250,000. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why the joint agencies, the FDIC and the Fed decided last night that they that, that there was some systemic risk by, for both um, Silicon Valley and then sub, subsequently yesterday signature that they would honor all deposit flows uh, starting uh, opening a business today. So if someone had money over $250,000 in the bank on Friday, they'd be able to withdraw it today. It, they can, yeah, there, there are no limitations on the withdrawals from either um, Silicon Valley and or Signature Bank, both different niche banks, but both uh, the regulators have uh, declared would pose some systemic risk to the system and, and primarily to certain industries. So in the case of Silicon Valley, we talked about the high tech concentration. One of the things that you need to know as an organization, banking organization is diversification is really important. And if you have a very large high concentration in any one industry, that's a peril that you have to manage. Um, so theirs was high tech. In the case of Signature, which got closed by the state of New York yesterday, it was crypto, but also they're the depository for a lot of large law firms in New York when they keep their escrow funds there. And again, that that could that you know could be fairly decimating um, to a number of industries where those law firms kept significant dollars at Signature as well. Well, they could have a client that has a large closing, a large closing where they get over two hundred fifty thousand, which in today's world is not really large, and it could just be there for a day or two until it's dispersed. There's no doubt, and so but so and so the regulators got together, and they also created last night something called the Bank Term Funding Program which is going to be available to all banks today, which provides a short-term liquidity, a, a one-year liquidity vehicle if banks need to borrow in order to fund uh, withdrawals or if they don't have borrowing capacity on, their, on the strength of their own balance sheet. So what should a business do? They have their, their typical float in their account is over 250000 a half a million, a million. What should they do about keeping their money? In a bank. I think you do your due diligence on your underlying depository institution. You ask some questions about liquidity, capital strength, borrowing cap capability, what you know, exposure to long-term interest rates. I think you know banks should be prepared to answer those questions so that they can provide comfort to both their consumer and their business banking clients. It's very, very important. And, and you know, in our case, we're a very liquid organization and we did that intentionally. Uh, we don't have a tremendous amount of exposure to higher rates because we have a short duration. So it's really about understanding some of the nuances. There are some other things. You know, there are bank rating agencies out there that can help out as well, you know, like a Bauer or some of the other ones if people want to look at those and they rate banks anywhere. What, from... are, what, are, what are the rating agencies' names? I cut you off, but I'm sorry. So, so that's okay. One of, them, one of them is Bauer. Uh, and Bauer does a one to a five-star rating for virtually every organ, every financial institution in in the U.S. 
Okay, so that's one that you can mention. Now, yeah, the, the other ones are primarily for those publicly owned institutions. So the traditional ones like the Moody's and the S&P. Okay, and those are those names are more familiar to people at this point now. Yes. Now, what did the, so the government went in and just said they're going to guarantee all the deposits? They did. And uh, what are the ramifications of this on an individual or a business's ability to borrow or on interest rates? So essentially, here's what happened. I, th- I think this is what happened. They, they um, the government took a look at both of the balance sheets of the organization and said, you know what. There, there's probably enough there that we can satisfy the withdrawals for anybody, regardless of the size of that deposit. Not a big issue. However, you know, the owners of those respective companies will probably get wiped out. Owners being shareholders, you know, they're always last in line. Um, and so they're they're gonna they're gonna get what they're they're gonna get wiped out. They're not Are you referring to the bank, the owners of the banks. The owners of the banks. I think management in each respective bank is gone now. And I think there is interim management that's been put in by the FDIC, who was named as the receiver. Uh, I, I think this is, you know, I don't think it's alarming. I think it's disconcerting. And I think that it's hopefully just an isolated one off, two off case. Uh, I don't think and the bank that the industry is extraordinarily well capitalized has a lot of either on balance sheet liquidity or the ability to borrow. Uh, so I, I don't think people should get alarmed by what's going on. I think they should just be understand what's going on and they may have to do some additional due diligence on their financial institution of choice. Now, what about a, a, a business that's going to a bank to borrow money? Can they expect to see any changes in borrowing terms or interest rates? I don't think so. Um, I don't, in fact, the, the bond market uh, has been very strong over the last 48 hours, which means that rates are coming down. So, so one of the dynamics, which is really quite interesting, Bob, is that, you know, since March of 2022, the Fed, which has a mandate of price stability, and you and I call that inflation control, um, at, at that 2% level has raised rate pretty, rates pretty precipitously. And that has that has sort of an impact in a dual impact. One is uh, the Fed for the first time or the U.S. Treasury for the first time, because rates are higher, particularly on the short end of the market, actually competes with banks for funding. You know, you can go out and buy a six month T-bill of five and a quarter. Banks are not offering five and a quarter on the deposit accounts. But the other part about that is that the, the higher rate environment has created a negative mark on the investment portfolios. Um, so, so the question is, does the Fed does the Fed continue on their mandate, which is really a dual mandate? One is price control in terms of inflation; the other one is full employment, which we don't have an issue with. Or do they take a pause and say, "I need to provide some kind of message to uh, the U.S. economy that we're going to support the banking system," and maybe actually take a pause in raising rates and maybe even lower rates? You know, those deliberations, and my guess, are going on, you know, as we're speaking this morning. Well, because a couple of weeks ago, Jerome Powell mentioned or there was some indication that they're going to raise the rates by a half a point at their next meeting. So you think that may. Yeah, I think they may pause. So that was Tuesday and a lot happened between Tuesday and Friday. Now, it's interesting that, (laughs) excuse me, that in the. um, um, one of the reports said that there was a difference between the loans that were 
the value of the loans on their balance sheet and their actual values. How did that happen? Well, so think about a loan as nothing more than uh, and then a bond. And so if you're booking, if you book a lot of loans in 2021 and 2020 at a rate of three and a quarter percent, uh, and you tried to sell that bond, obviously with current rates in the sixes or six and a half or somewhere in that area, the underlying value of that loan is going to be less. Most banks do not sell their loans. They hold them because it's part of a relationship and they just actually manage interest rate risk by trying to match up the duration of both the assets and liabilities on the balance sheet. But there is a negative mark. Now, that said, there's also a positive mark on core deposits. So non-interest bearing demand, you know, checking accounts right now, if you're not, if banks aren't paying a lot on checking accounts, and in our case, that represents probably 25% of our total deposit base, the value of those when rates are higher is significantly higher. So if you're going to mark the market, the asset side of the balance sheet, you need to consider the liability side as well. Okay, so, but then why is there a difference between what's on the balance sheet versus what the actual values are? On the because um, in accounting, when it comes to gap accounting and regulatory accounting, for the most part, most assets are held and liabilities are held at a historical cost, not market value. There, there is, there's a couple exceptions. The investment portfolios of banks are fall into three categories, and you designate every investment when you buy it. One is trading, and, a, and the trading account underlying assets are marked to market every quarter, and the change in market value actually runs through the PL. The second one is available for sale that says that you have the ability and intent to hold them to maturity, but you may want to sell them and they get marked to market. Um, and But that runs through the balance sheet. So positive or negative mark. And the third designation is, is uh, held to maturity, which is always held at the uh, the historical cost basis. It's never marked to market. So that th those are the reasons for the differences. Yes. Yeah. Right. It, is there anything that a business owner should do now as a result of this? Was this a wake up call for people? I think I think the business owner just needs to understand and have a discussion um, with with their banker about things like liquidity, whether or not they're going to continue in the market. Again, I don't want to I don't want to um, create an alarming situation I, because I don't think you need to do that. I think these two banks were very isolated as niche organizations doing business in a very different fashion that from you and I would consider traditional commercial slash community banking. Um, you know, obviously, you know, all weekend I took a number of calls about deposit insurance and what's the risk profile and the like. And I think most people are very comfortable. Think about what we do. We gather local deposits and make local loans. We do so in a very diversified fashion. That's a very different kind of business model than either Signature had and or um, Silicon Valley. And you, uh, and also, I, I would imagine the larger banks, the four large money center banks, they're much more diversified. You don't know, no doubt whatsoever. In fact, I think it's uh, First Republic Bank, which is another one on a lot of body short list, came out this morning that said that both the Fed and J.P. Morgan Chase last night provided them additional liquidity vehicles. So, yeah, the, the uh, diversification is extraordinarily important in anything that we do because. 
you know, we don't want to be subject to the vagaries of a single industry or a couple industries that have negative press, and therefore they can expose the bank to greater risk. And in the interest of full disclosure, I'm a depositor and a borrower from your bank, and I'm also a shareholder in First Republic Bank. So I guess it really is going to cover everybody, touch everybody. These I think I think it is. I, I think it is. We are. Uh, I, I think honestly, at the end of the day. I hate to say this, but one of the benefactors of this whole thing is going to be community banking. People understand what they do. People understand that the risk profile is different. People understand that uh, what when you pick up the phone, you can talk to somebody on the other end of the phone. You know, Bob, you sent me a, a text on Saturday morning at 8.50, and I think we were chatting at 8.52. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It took a, a good two minutes for you to catch up to me. And then we spoke several times or communicated several times over the weekend. And I can't thank you enough for that. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for being such a great patron. We appreciate it. And it's also got to be very comforting because you don't treat me any differently than you treat any of your other customers. You're they're in touch with you and you're every one of your bank is extraordinarily responsive. It's really it's really look, it, we always talk about those things, very important things in people's lives. And one of them is their money. And so one of the things that we try to do at Manuscon Bank is remove barriers and communication barriers, intellectual barriers uh, are, are things that people need to have access to. So when they pick up the phone and they want to talk to somebody about an issue, particularly as it pertains to their, to their, to their financial well-being, it's very important that we have a responsive, full complement of colleagues. Okay. And so um, my takeaways on this is that, number one, is that obviously you have to Look at your bank and see what their liquidity is. Speak with your bank. Um, maybe if you're concerned, look at the rating agencies on the bank and just have a, a candid relationship with the bankers. And if you're really concerned, keep your deposits below 250 to the extent that you can, with the understanding that many businesses can't. I think that, that that's absolutely right. And you know, there and and you know, unfortunately, there's there's a report card that bank gets. And I say unfortunately because. It's called a CAMELS rating, and it's provided by the regulatory authorities. And it stands for Capital Asset Quality Management Earnings Liquidity and Interest Rate Sensitivity. And they rate all banks from a one to a five, one being the best, five being turnover the keys. Uh, it's actually illegal for banks to disclose their rating. And the reason is, is because if you're a four or five uh, rated bank, then just by virtue of disclosure of that rating, you're going to have a run on the bank. Um, and and it's unfortunate because it would be a very valuable tool for people to know how the regulatory authorities rank their uh, their their organization of choice. All right. Well, this is very helpful. Is there anything else that I haven't asked that I should have asked? Anything else you want to let us know about? Because you've been very generous with your time over the weekend and this morning. Anything else that I could? No, I think I think you comprehensively addressed all the issues that that may be of some concern to. Uh, your listening base. And that's really very important. What we're trying to do is be truthful and fully transparent about what's going on. And yet at the same time, make sure that people don't, you know, not be an alarmist because this is not a systemic issue throughout the the uh, the industry, but hopefully just isolated cases. So no, I think you've done a terrific job and I appreciate the time uh, to have to speak with you this morning as well, Bob. All right. Well, Jim, uh, thank you very much. This is James Vaccaro, the chair, CEO, and president of Manasquan Bank, and you're headquartered in Wool, New Jersey. And just thank you very much. So thank you, and um, I'll let you get back to uh, speaking with some of your other clients. Thanks, Bob. Thank Have a great day, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.